listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Good morning. Uh, Happy Father's Day to all you dads. Grateful that you guys could be here this morning. So begin, I just want to begin with a little bit of a story of my own life. So after college, I graduated from the University of Arizona in Tucson, and Aaron and I had met and planned uh, to get married, and I finished in around May and moved up to Phoenix and got my own apartment and began a job. I began the job of construction where we were building new homes out at this kind of ritzy golf course in northern Scottsdale. And so early mornings in in Phoenix or that area in the summertime, you'd wake up at 3 a.m. and make your way there so that at sunrise you would work until about 2 or 3 in the afternoon because it was just blazing hot. And so I I really enjoyed that. We worked as a uh, carpenter for, for probably a little over a year. Aaron and I had gotten married. And I really enjoyed that industry. I loved working with my hands. I loved building homes. I thought, man, this is really a kind of a little side gig, a little side hustle. This will be great, something that I can continue even as I jump into seminary. So we got married in April, and then we, we moved to uh, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, which is in South Hamilton, Massachusetts. When I was, uh, you know, it was, we had just gotten married. So April got married, August we moved there. And Sure enough, part of the, the ways to begin in the summer is not just jump into school, but also in the process of connecting with the church. Through the course of those years that I was there, I, uh, I started to work for another guy in the summers doing construction as well. But here's what I found out. Um, construction was a little bit different. We weren't building new homes. We were doing renovations. There's a difference, and here's the difference, right? With brand new homes, you never have to worry about demolition. Demolition is by far the worst part for me of renovation because you're, you're tearing out these walls. There's junk and bugs and insulation everywhere. It's just a, a dirty, nasty part of the job. Now, when we got to renovation and we're rebuilding the stuff that we had just destroyed, it was great and I loved it. But I will communicate that demoli- demolition was by far the worst part of renovation. Why do I say that? That's Romans 9, 19 through 29. <laughs> And here's what I mean. There's a sense in which what Paul is doing is there's a a level of both of those two things happening simultaneously. There's a demolition component of of what God is doing in in wrestling with our own hearts about how we see and understand the sovereignty, goodness, and providence of God throughout all of human history and marrying that even with some of the confusing moments in our own lives, the confusing moments of why did this happen? How could this happen? Those, those very places where we're finding ourselves arrested with the concerns about being told on a regular basis that God is good and faithful and loving and gracious and merciful and just, and yet we look at the canvas of our own story and our own lives, and we could all mine a little bit of those moments where we would say, in that moment, that didn't feel true. <laughs> I was uncertain whether the goodness and fairness and justice and mercy of God was as real to me as as it says in the scriptures. Often our feelings aren't married with our reality or what God even tells us of himself. And so there's a level of confusion that begins to grow in those moments. 
And that's where I think the work of the scriptures is the work of demolition. There's places in our own hearts that are being torn down as we're misconstruing or even at times misappropriating or misunderstanding the work of God in our lives. Paul does that this morning in Romans 9, 19 through 29, through the lenses of wrestling what he's done throughout most of the the book as he's communicating to a church at Rome. He's, He's asking questions, almost anticipating the questions that are being asked, or maybe he's actually heard these questions and is answering them. But the challenge with Romans 9, 19 through 29, is Paul asks a question and doesn't answer it. (laughs) uh, So far, every time in in, uh, the beginning of this book and and all the way up to this point, he's he's actually answered the questions. He's, He's asked those very things that people are wondering about the character and the nature of God, and he's saying, oh, by no means, God is fair and good and gracious and just. He's working in innumerable ways. Well, he asked the very question that I think you and I would wrestle with on a fairly regular basis. And, and here's the question. If God is good and faithful, he's in control of all things, and he's working to dispense his mercy on individuals, and he knows where all of those things are going, and he's, he's operating in all the nooks and crannies of our life. If he is sovereign and in control, all-powerful and omniscient, he's able to do everything and knows everything, then how can anybody be found to be at fault? How can we be held responsible for the decisions that we make if God is the one operating in the midst of all of those decisions? Well, that's a tricky wicket, isn't it, right? We find ourselves in that place wondering and thinking to ourselves, okay, there is a logical question of asking ourselves, okay, who is really responsible? In the midst of our lives and the decisions we make and the things that are done, if God is all-knowing and all-powerful and at work in all of these ways, how can we even be blamed for the things that have happened and the decisions that we made if God's in control of all things? Pretty tough theological concept if you ask me. I mean, it's, it's mind-bending if we just even sit in it in those ways, but, but Paul does something that I think is absolutely just just beautiful as he he scripts this challenge that exists in all human hearts right how can we be found responsible for the things that have happened to us or even the decisions that we made if god is in control of all things and look what paul does in the mystery of all of not answering the question i think he shifts the question to begin to deal with the necessary demolition that has to take place inside each of us Look with me, if you will, in verse 19, and this is where he begins. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? I mean, who can resist his will? And here's the answer. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter have no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one of vessels for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Okay, so now it seems as though Paul shifts the conversation, and I don't think that he's not wanting to answer the question. In some ways, I think he answers the question by helping us begin to get a better view of what we already know of God. And so I think what he's going to do through this entire text is two things. Ask us to do two things. He's asking us to look up and to look in. 
Those are the two critical realities of, of any circumstance we face in our life that even as we think about the framework and the trajectory of the decisions we make and the circumstances that we don't have control over and even the challenges and sin that exists inside our own heart, here is where Paul is leading us. There's a, a demolition that needs to take place inside of our own soul as we look in. We have a sense, if we're honest, that there are places where we wonder if we had been God, we would have done it better. <laughs> we had better thoughts. We, we would have been more fair and more accurate. We would have, seeing what we see and knowing what we know, we could have made a better decision that would have had a better outcome. I think what Paul is doing here is hearkening us back all the way to Genesis 3. It's the same challenge, right? That tree looked really good and was desirable. God said, don't, and man said, why not? This challenge and desire to actually be our own gods is the source of the majority of our sin. We know better or the appetites we have drive us in ways that make us feel like we know how to solve our own problems and solutions and so we find ease in giving over to those appetites and temptations. What Paul says here is, let me give you an image and I want you to plant this image in your mind as you're wrestling with trying to understand God. I want you to look up and I want you to look in. And the image that he uses is consistent throughout all of Scripture, actually all the way back to Jeremiah. There's a lump of clay. Does the lump of clay decide and have a voice in what that lump of clay becomes? <laughs> the answer to that is no. The, the potter gets to decide and craft and fashion the reality of what this lump of clay becomes. But in the process of those things... The question that I think is embedded underneath this is, do you know the potter? <laughs> in the sense that what Paul has done to this church in Rome who has wrestled with numerous different challenges in their life is that he's been so consistent of presenting the truth of who God is. And, and Romans 8 became the pinnacle of the declaration of God's love. There's, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that means God is good and fair and just and loving. He's working in innumerable ways. And, and Romans 8 ends with this, this declaration that if you're in and, and have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as a, a gift that God has given, then you are part of a, a love that cannot be separated or demolished in any way. You are part of the family of God by the sheer act of grace and mercy. You are in and God is working in no matter what challenges you and I face in our life. We cannot be severed from that relationship. Why does Paul do that? Because he wants to move us to the reality that that relationship is the primary relationship that dictates all of life. He's saying, I want you to see the glories of Christ in the challenges you face in this world. I want, there's a desire for the church at Rome and even you and I here now in the midst of the challenges to remember the power and the potency and the work of God and his character. We're called to look up. Do we know who the potter is? Would there ever be one moment in the annuals of all of human history when we all stand worshiping the creator of the heavens and the earth and heaven and, and all of this has been brought to consummation where we could ever la levy an accusation against God that he was unfair, that he was unloving in his actions towards us, that he was unkind and not as tender as he should have been. 
Well, we would say no. The Bible declares the goodness of God and his majesty. The book of Isaiah would tell us numerous ways that, that God spun and, and by the span of his hand, he, he created and fashioned the heavens to declare his glories and goodness to the world that, that even in creation, even in broken creation after the fall, there are still marks and fingerprints of a loving, active, pursuing God rescuing people from the depths of sin and destruction but we find ourselves in this text wondering are we responsible for the things that we've done or is God just kind of this puppet master just sort of pulling the strings is really the the essence of what he's getting at and yet the answer to that question is no what you need to see is a God who is the true God the one who is loving and kind and just and working in ways beyond what you and I could think, see, or believe. So where's the demolition? That's what happens when we look in. There are parts of our hearts that need to be broken to the place of realizing that we are not the ones that know best. We have a Father in heaven whose character resides and displays itself through the earth, and we look at Jesus and all the work that God has done throughout all of human history. And what does he tell us? Jesus saw fit, the second person of the Trinity, was sent down in human form to be tempted in every way that you and I are yet without sin. For what purpose? To declare amongst the nations that this world is not what determines our ultimate hope. That we have salvation, that our sin is not defining or determinative, but there is a, a God who seeks to rescue it. It even tells us, I came that they, that they would what? That it would seek and save the lost. The world is lost without Christ, and Paul is reminding the church of those two things. That in the midst of the challenges that you and I face, and even this uncertainty about whether God is acting fairly to us or to those we love, we begin by looking up and looking in. Where is it where I want to make God in my own image? And where is it where I'm trusting the God as he's declared himself through the truth of his word? The demolition is oftentimes we want a God that looks like the God we want, not the God of the scriptures. And so part of that drywall, if you will, or those areas need to be pulled back so that we can get down to the bare studs of who God really is. But we have to remember that he's talking to a church in Rome. And the church is, he's never been there, but he knows that there's challenges in the church, like in most churches. And there's two factions within the context of the church that are kind of disagreeing with one another. <laughs> They're not too thrilled about the other's position. You've got Gentiles or non-Jews, and you've got the, the Jews, those individuals who are, like Paul said last week, are inheritors of the covenant. They're filled with the promises. They've, they've been a part of God's chosen race from the very beginning. Since Abraham, God has worked in innumerable ways, and these two groups are worshiping together. And just imagine for a moment what they're saying about the other group. The Jews would be looking at the Gentiles and saying, who are these guys? These Johnny-come-latelys. They've got no idea what we've been through as a nation and as a people. No clue what it took to go through and be told about the exodus and, and remember about the covenants and the promises and that God has done. My people have suffered at the hands of those who would seek to keep them in slavery for forever. 
and yet God had freed them and worked in innumerable and miraculous ways. And, and these Gentiles just get to come in and do whatever they want? Like somehow in some way they didn't go through all that we've been through, and yet they get to experience the same inheritance and joy that we get to? And then you have the Gentiles looking at the Jews and said, yeah, you had it all, and you blew it. Like you killed Jesus. What? You got nothing to stand on. And so this conflict and these shots over the bow are taking place in the context of the church, and Paul is reminding them that God is God, and he gets to call the shots. That he's doing a work, and God is always at work, and his work is worthy to be trusted. I think that that's an essential element of what Paul is doing here as we look up and we look in. Look with me in verses 22 through 24, because here's where Paul begins to take it. In the next phase of realizing there's some level of position that we have before God, and that is we're not him. He is. And so as we look at God and we realize that he is good and fair and loving and just, then what is the response? Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles so Paul offers a, a what if statement a, a thought process a, a concern for us to consider what if God is working in such a way that certainly in the most atrocious of times, we would want instantaneous justice. But what if in the process of God just allowing and enduring with the world as they're selfishly making all of these decisions, is doing it in such a way to build our faith and trust in the work and the mercy of God on our behalf? What if God is doing something so much more imaginable that you could think or imagine in such a way that his glory is displayed to the world because no one would ever say that the things that God had done would even have been possible. There's a limitation that I think often we find ourselves facing. And I think that's what, what Paul is doing here is that we frequently need to be reminded of our limits. That there are things we don't fully understand, not because of a level, maybe sometimes, I guess, because of a level of ignorance, but there are only things that we know because God has revealed them to us about his character. And what does he tell us? Like, there is never a moment where God is not worthy to be trusted. We levy accusations against God that he is vengeful, wrathful, mean, not working on our behalf, listening to other people's prayers but not our own. We get confused and we internalize our view of God from the standpoint of what? our circumstances. All of us hear voices. <laughs> that sounds crazy, like there's mental health problems. But we all do. Like we're, we're all telling our things, telling ourselves things, thousands of different things on a daily basis. Sometimes our circumstances are dictating and directing our view of God. Sometimes our own insecurities and frustrations are shaping our view of God and other people. Sometimes, if not frequently, the very noise that we hear in our life becomes so loud that it distracts us from the reality of who God really is. And thus, the word becomes so essential to direct our attention 
to who God really is. Not what we've been told, not what the noise in our life tells us, but what the word tells us about the character and the nature of God. And what does that tell us? Just consecutively and consistently throughout all of scripture, what does God tell us about himself? He's caring and working in innumerable ways that he's a God of mercy and grace that he cares about his glory, that he came to seek and save the lost, that the character and the nature of God is that he is all-knowing and all-good all the time. There's not a moment where God is not acting in, within the context of his character to dispense love and grace and justice to our own hearts and the lives of those around us. But here's the challenge. There are times where we're looking at life and people that we know and we're wondering this text even forces us to wonder, are they vessels that God has created for dishonorable use? <laughs> we have those we love that have strayed. We have people that we care about that might not know Jesus, and we worry about what the end of their life might mean. We grow concerned and urgent about the state of the world and even the trajectory that the world is on and we can say to ourselves it's getting worse but it feels like God's out of control and we're wondering when God is going to do something and then here's what we do when God's not doing something well if he's not working I guess I will and we step in and so here's the place where Paul brings us and and communicates that there is this work that God is doing to mold the clay but here's what we don't know you and I are never able to tell whether the lumps that he's building and the, the clay that he's molding are going to be vessels of honor or dishonor, but here's what we do know. Here's what we do know. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Same author of the book of Romans, but here's what he says. I think Paul gives us an image that helps us understand as we look up and we look in, we come to the realization that there are amazing, miraculous things that God is doing. Verse 20 says this. Uh, 19, I'm sorry. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone whose name is, names is the, <laughs> let everyone whose names, the name of the Lord, depart from iniquity. Verse 20. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel from honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. What Paul would tell us in Romans chapter 9 is that at every moment of life and every person we encounter, everyone that still draws breath, you and I are not the ones who are able to decide whether they are honorable or dishonorable in terms of their status before the God of the universe. He's at work in ways beyond what we know. And so if we took a snapshot of anyone's story in the context of their life, here's what we'd say. At any moment in life, we could somehow in some ways try to make a decision about where they stand with the Lord. But when their story's not yet fully finished being written, we don't know the full picture of what God's doing. And so often the goal is to say, look up and look in. As we move towards the world around us, we not only look up and look in, we also have to look out. That there are those who are in desperate need of rescuing. That there is a transition that can take place from vessels of honor 
to, to vessels of dishonor, to vessels of honor, that God is instrumenting miraculous and amazing change in people's lives. So I think what he says here in these last few verses, 25 through 29, is that God's mercy is the source of all change. Here's what he says. He uses uh, a couple of different passages from the Old Testament, which are incredibly intriguing. The story of Hosea becomes the primary one he uses to help us understand how radical God is in rescuing and loving and pursuing people. And here's the story. Here's what he says. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand in the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So here's the two contrasts. He gets this image of Hosea the prophet, who was called to marry Gomer and have this whole reality that there was just a, a level and a picture uh, through the lenses of marriage of chronic unfaithfulness. And yet this consistency and this call to go back and love even in the midst of, of infidelity and, and a, a consistent disregard for the love that Hosea had for his wife and family. And that God was changing even through the lenses of the three kids that were being born, that they were initially called no mercy and those who were called not my beloved and they will be changed to be sons of the living God, that God is enacting and instrumenting incredible and enormous change. But had God not acted in mercy, had God not been pursuing, had God not been the God that he said that he was, what would have been the result? Paul tells us we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah that God would have been faithful and accurate to just dispense justice. But God continued in his infinite wisdom to pursue dispensing mercy and hope and grace, that there's always an option for change in the lives of those we know and love. I know that part of the challenge of this text is we're trying to look back and figure out all of the work of God and, and those we love and even those who know Jesus and don't, don't know Jesus and can't really figure out all of the details of why life is the way that it is. But Paul says to us, look, look up and remind yourself of the character and the nature of God. Look in and realize we're somewhat limited. We don't have the ability to be sovereign. We're not omniscient and omnipotent. We don't know everything and have all power. That There is a God who does, and he's at work in innumerable ways. The gospel reminds us that God is good. Only he can rescue. Only he can change. And here's what you need to know about God. He delights to show mercy. What if that was our prayer? God, would you show mercy to, to those that I love that don't know you to the neighborhood around us that doesn't know you to the world that is volatile and polarized in innumerable ways. God, would you reveal your mercy as you've revealed it to me and remind me of your goodness and your grace. Here's where I think it really comes down and I'll, I'll finish with this. I'd like to tell you a story of, of Hannah Tyner. I came across her story just recently from a, 
uh, a blog uh, that was talking about a, a home for women, a refugee uh, home, really, for women, or a, I should say not refugee, but a refuge for women in Las Vegas. At the age of 16, Hannah had somehow in some way become aware or involved in the use of prescription drugs. She had dated an older man, and he introduced her to this reality. And so she began to grow addicted to Percocet. The age of 17, she found that this older guy had decided that Percocet was a little bit too expensive and heroin was a cheaper option. And she ended up becoming addicted to heroin. That relationship fell apart, and she found another relationship, and that guy began to use her in innumerable ways and actually trafficked her so that he used her for his own ends and provided her the opportunity to continue to feed her addiction. But over the course of a few years, she had gotten pregnant. The guy that she was with ended up getting arrested for dealing drugs, but because she didn't want to lose him, she took the blame. Spent three years in prison um, and lost, uh, her, her child was taken from her by the Department of Public Services. And she was no longer able to uh, care for her child and it had to go into foster care. Sitting in the jail cell for a few months, she had finally become clean and sober. If you had walked through the halls of that jail cell, what would have been your impression at that point? Just a snapshot of her life, looking back on her story, even if she was honest with you about all of the terrible things that she had done and all of the things that she had lost, would you have made the call or the decision that there would be a sense in which she was a vessel for honor or one for dishonor? Story didn't measure up to much. It wasn't awesome. She didn't have a lot of great things to say and a lot of hope for her future. One person asked her a question. The question was, is this really what you want out of your life? She said, no, she wants more than anything to get her child Savannah back and begin to live a life free from the addiction that she faced. She wanted desperately to be different. But the pressure of the assessment of everyone around her was really hard to break free from. Some had discarded her as though her value had been lost by the life choices that she had made. And yet, what you get is this understanding that even in those worst moments of people's lives, because of a rescuing, merciful God, it doesn't have to be the end of her story. God can and does and will change because he's working in incredible ways. And that was her journey. She was able to move to this uh, home of refuge for women in Las Vegas. And God got a hold of her heart in tremendous ways told her about the value of who she was and that the image of God had not been lost over her life even though there had been numerous bad decisions. In the context, God began to redeem and restore her heart that she saw the value that she had in a relationship with God and that that relationship wouldn't be one in which it would be used for his own ends or abused in any way, but she would find herself as part of a family of God and valued and loved in ways that she had never felt before. 
all of the losses that she had lost through the chronic sinful decision-making that she had made were now changed because of this relationship that she found through a merciful, pursuing, loving God. Her life was changed. She is able to now be a mother to her young daughter. God restored that which was broken by sin. I think what we get here in Romans chapter 9 sometimes can elicit a lot of theological confusion. Where do we stand? Sovereignty, predestination, election. What is God doing in the midst of all of these things? How can, how can God be doing those things and still find fault for sin? And, and here's what we need to realize is that God never stands behind or endorses sin. He doesn't somehow make that happen. But in the context of the sinful decisions that are made, what we do is we find ourselves realizing that there's a desire for a God who is active in dispensing his mercy in incredible ways. God delights to show mercy. So let's look at our lives as we look at the backdrop of even Hannah's story. There's not one of us that doesn't need change at this moment. There's a demolition that needs to take place in every single one of our hearts, including my own. Some twisted, distorted views about the goodness and character and the nature of God because of traumatic and difficult circumstances that have happened to us. But if we look up and look in, what we get is a a God who delights to show mercy and is loving and kind that draws people to himself and is so, so worthy to be worshipped. And as we look in, we find ourselves surrendering God, I know that I need change. Would you have your way inside of me? And then ultimately we look out. Or there's a world out there that does not know that hope. And I never know who's going to be in and who's going to be out or what all those things. But I do know that everyone I approach in every single way in every moment of life is one who I desire to receive the mercy of God. Or I want to desire that they receive the mercy of God. So we pray as we look at Romans 19 through 29 and we wrestle and here's what we say. God is infinitely good and infinitely fair and infinitely just and he's working to instrument change in people's lives. So there is no one that we encounter that is without hope. No one is too far gone because we serve a God who is delighting to dispense mercy. Would you pray with me? Father, we do want to love you more. We do desire your grace to be evident, not only in our lives. We would ask, even as a church family, that, that there would be some demolition that takes place in our own hearts. We know that we've built an infrastructure of our lives in terms of how we see you or even how we expect you to do things, and yet you tell us that you can do infinitely more than we can even ask or imagine. And so even our view of you is limited. And so, Father, I pray that you would expand our view of you, that we would see you for who you truly are. And in the process of those things, surrender to your faithfulness and your goodness and in ways in which you and you alone would receive the glory. And we are so grateful that you delight to extend mercy to those who would turn to you. So, Father, I just ask that our hearts would turn to you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to have a time of response, and I really feel like, like Charlie said, this is a hard passage sometimes. I know for me personally, it it gets 